From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Charlotte Yore. As you may know, North Carolina has been in the news recently due to the passage of House Bill 2, a controversial new law that in part regulates the usage of public facilities based on sex assigned at birth. This bill has catalyzed considerable backlash both in the state and in fact throughout the nation within the LGBTQ community and their allies. But while this particular moment has galvanized a mass response, the media coverage may mask the longer trajectory of North Carolina's history of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans activism. This month's episode, in celebration of LGBT Pride Month in June and in the wake of current events, will focus on the oral histories of lesbian, gay, trans, and queer-identified folks who provide narratives that offer a fuller picture of LGBTQ history both at UNC and in the Triangle area of North Carolina. Often, written narratives of LGBTQ experiences are scarce, incomplete, or are told from an outside vantage point. Oral histories are then an important way to access the narratives from a first-person perspective that may have otherwise been erased. During this episode of Press Record, our first segment, On the Page, features an interview with some members of the SOHP family, Evan Falkenberry and Aaron Hayworth, who recently published an article on the Carolina Gay Association in a special edition of the Oral History Review. In the second segment, From the Field, Charlotte talks to Carol Prince, a new field scholar here at the Southern Oral History Program, who participated in this past spring's oral history seminar, where we focused on race, gender, and entrepreneurship. Carol interviewed two lesbian women about their experiences as small business owners in Durham, North Carolina. Finally, in the third segment from the archive, we'll share clips from interviews in our oral history archive with members of the LGBTQ community both at UNC and in the broader Triangle area. It offers some thoughts on building community, whether the South poses unique challenges for LGBTQ folks, and what kind of coalition building is taking place. mentioned in this podcast will be linked on the homepage of Press Record at SOHP.org. On the Page, where we talk with scholars about how they used oral history as part of their research for their newly published work. So I'm very excited that our former field scholar Evan Falkenberry and former intern Aaron Hayworth have recently been published in the brand new special edition of the Oral History Review with their article about the Gay Association at Carolina. For those of you who've been listening to Press Record, Evan's voice will be a very familiar one. He was my co-host on several of the previous episodes. Their article is titled The Carolina Gay Association, Oral History, and Coming Out at the University of North Carolina. It draws on research that interns who worked at the Southern Oral History Program in the 2013-2014 academic year did 
on the history of LGBTQ activism at UNC, where they interviewed former activists in the area. And one of the wonderful things about this article is that at the time, Evan was a graduate student who was kind of overseeing the internship, and Aaron was an undergrad doing this research with Evan's tutelage. It was really exciting for us that they took the initiative to write an article based on the research that the group had done, and then it was accepted for publication in the Oral History Review. Although we're sad to lose Evan, we're excited he will be serving as an assistant professor of Public and United States History at the State University of New York at Cortland starting this fall. Aaron is currently a Master's in Divinity candidate at Duke Divinity School, where he has assisted in an LGBTQIA oral history course, and he is also an intern with Conflict Transformation Ministries. Field scholar Carol Prince sat down with Evan and Aaron to ask them some questions about their article. You will also hear interspersed with this conversation one of the interviews included in Evan and Aaron's paper, an oral history from 2014 with Randall Keenan, professor of English and Comparative Literature here at UNC, who sheds light on the experience of being both black and gay at UNC as a student in the early 1980s, and speaks back to some of the points Evan and Aaron mention. Neither Aaron nor I were like well versed in gay history. So right at the start I was thinking like, oh no, like I don't know anything about this subject, but we kind of all learned it together. The CJ sort of ended up being that kind of central thread and that's what we sort of focused on. So maybe the thesis around that would be the CGA was one way to be gay at Carolina, but there were other ways to to have a community based around uh, your experience. So there's a line in the article that says oral histories complicate the written record by adding the texture of competing voices. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what specifically did you find from oral history interviews that the written record didn't show? What we were getting at there is there is more nuance and just this notion that the CGA was this hyper-political group was a lot of what the students were harboring as they went into their interviews. We have voices from students or faculty that were interviewed that kind of challenge that, that say, you know, we were just getting by. We had, like, a lot of parties. And it was a place where you were just, like, coming to enjoy, like, the freedom of being who you were. Then again, the same came from our interview with Randall Keenan, who kind of said he felt this pressure from the black community not to be a part of um, the CGA. So it's competing voices saying, no, it's not all just one way. Like the Carolina Gay Association may have been a safe space for some students, but it wasn't a safe space for all students. We felt we had to, we we felt even being, being pressed to make a choice. And I think you could either be, identify as being gay or identify as being black. But there had to be a hierarchy. So I think my gay life was fairly segregated. As we interviewed people, like we realized the CJ is not totally united. Mm-hmm. It's much more complicated than that. How does oral history sort of complicate newsletters and other like written sources? And so that was another part that we used because Lambda, if you read it, it's very, you know, as a lot of newsletters are newspapers or any primary sources, it's very one-dimensional. 
and it kind of presents the CJ as like this big united front. And another thing that we discovered as we were writing this was just how interviewing people about the CJ and about what it was like to be gay in Chapel Hill in the 70s and 80s, we just sort of realized like people are out in very different ways at this point in time, just like now, it's not any different. But it was just this big constellation of ways that people were uh, representing themselves. And so it was a challenge for us to get that down on the paper. You know, there's just not a whole lot of, a whole lot being written about queer identity and gay activism in the South. And I think that's, I think that's changing. I think there is a lot that's going to come out too. Yeah. The LGBTQ history is being formalized like now, but there's a lot of difficulties in it that would probably make it impossible for someone to write only based on written materials. We relied on oral history, background literature, primarily based on interviews. Yeah, I think that we just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg. I think there's a lot more research to be done at UNC and North Carolina and the South. There's so much happening right now in current events with, you know, HB2 in North Carolina, the Defense of Marriage Act just being overturned a few years ago. And it's still such a big divisive polarizing issue in modern politics and I guess when we looked back you know 30 40 years I guess what I found was not what I expected that people were having these kind of conversations that are so reminiscent of today you know there were people fighting for gay rights in the 1970s students faculty university officials Chapel Hill residents and at the same time there were people fighting hard against them you know I don't mean to to minimize what's been won over the last half century. So much has. But at the same time, a lot of those opinions are just so cemented in, it seems. It's a little bit depressing to think about some of the things that haven't changed a whole lot. I don't know. I guess, yeah, there's a bit, there's a big old history <laughs> wrapped up in this. And for gay people, I think that, uh, I think we're in, we're in for a much longer slog than we realize. And I worry that it's, it's, uh, as fast as things are happening, I don't know how real that is. So I, I, might, I might be pessimistic <laughs> or cynical. One of the things I remember them talking about a lot in that internship experience was they were looking for gay activism. That was how they defined their research project. And one of the things they discovered or had to grapple with was what does activism mean? Because what a lot of their interviewees told them was, we just needed a space to be. And that, you know, how you draw a line between socializing and activism was pretty fuzzy in some people's minds. Because to them, that felt like, in a way, it felt like a a radical move just to create a space where people could be together. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a radical act to provide space for people who are marginalized. But it didn't look like what they had been looking for in in their research. That's not what they were kind of looking for in terms of activism. Yeah, and it sounds, too, like all the written information, like from the Lambda newsletter, made it sound like it was a more politically active group, but that a lot of the oral histories spoke more about it being that place for community and how that was what was so needed at that time. Some histories of 
LGBTQ life have suggested that there's a dichotomy between being in the closet and miserable and out of the closet and happy or fulfilled in some kind of way. And these oral histories really push back against that dichotomy and suggest that that's not always the only way to define the gay experience, whether you were in the closet or out of the closet. Sometimes that metaphor doesn't really hold true for people's experience. Yeah, I think one of the greatest things about oral histories is that they do push back against binary kind of thinking that something is one way or the other, and they complicate that and allow for more complexity and a lot more honesty. In the field, where researchers talk about their experiences doing oral history. As part of the Spring 2016 Oral History Seminar focused on race, gender, and entrepreneurship, taught by our own Dr. Rachel Seidman, SOHP field scholar Carol Prince conducted two oral histories with Jeannie Smith and Erin Karcher, two self-identified lesbians who own small businesses in Durham, North Carolina. In this segment, we'll listen to two clips from those interviews, and Carol will discuss what she learned from the process about gender, sexuality, community, and business ownership. Well, this past year, we actually installed uh, flooring in, you know, in a couple of the rooms and refinished all the flooring in the LG. BT Center for free, you know, that was just something that we did, you know, we, like I said, and when we do stuff like that, we don't charge them for material, nothing, we just go do it, <laughs> you know, we go do it, it's, uh, I think it's part of everybody's responsibility to take care of their community, it's, it's your place, you know, <laughs> make it better, <laughs> um, pretty sure I was about the first sponsor of the Lesbian Gay Film Festival here. I don't know how long it's been going on, but I know we've been contributing to that forever. Really what makes it good these days is that we don't have to be separate. It used to be we would have like little booklets of gay businesses and uh, they would be put out, you know, you put your name in them, maybe take a little ad. And to me, the wonderful leap we've made today is that we really don't need a little booklet of gay businesses anymore. We're everywhere. It's been really great to see the outpouring of support from the community. It took a while for it to sink in that I was becoming a business owner and that we were actually doing this. I've definitely always wanted to be more politically active than I have been. Definitely got into a lot of big discussions around Amendment 1. That really hurt. It was a really politically charged we went out on Rigsby Street the night that that didn't go through. And it was really encouraging to see that all of Rigsby Street was open. They had some kind of liquor thing where you could carry beer from place to place. And the entire, all of Durham was just ashamed. It was really special to live in a place that was so clearly against it. But I didn't think that North Carolina was going to ever come up with the idea of marriage equality on their own. I thought it would have to pass nationally first. And I didn't expect that to happen as soon as it did. It's been really amazing how fast things, once they got momentum moved along. 
doing these two interviews was really interesting because both of these women, you know, share the fact that they're both white, they're both cis women, they both identify as lesbian, but at the same time, they come from really different backgrounds, and I interviewed them at very different stages of their careers. Jeannie Smith, who's the owner of Accent Hardwood Flooring, she grew up in Shreveport. Uh, she eventually you know, moved to Durham because she wanted to relocate to somewhere that she described as being you know, more progressive and being close to a university and having a booming construction business, because that's important if you're doing hardwood flooring. And I asked her about her experiences of discrimination and she told me that the only other woman that she had ever worked with was someone that she hired and that she had always really gotten along well with guys on the job, which is something, you know, I walked into the interview having my own ideas about what it might be like to be a lesbian woman growing up in an earlier generation in a male-dominated field and learning a trade in a male-dominated field like hardwood flooring or construction. And she said the guys liked her because she worked hard and she was able to really navigate navigate her way to owning a business. Erin, who is a co-owner of Arcana, which is a new business, which opened in December of 2015, had a really different trajectory. She grew up in Raleigh, went to Chapel Hill, got a bachelor's and a master's, and worked in the service industry for a long time and was really active in the lesbian community in the early millennium in Durham. You know, the bar scene and coffee shop culture and all that, and, and talks about Franklin Street having these niches where lesbian women could gather. And and getting to the point where she wanted to do something for herself and she wanted to create a space. And she said in the interview that Arcana is not, you know, necessarily a queer bar, but she wanted to create a space where people who might otherwise not have a space in the booming bar scene in Durham, like goths or people who are into tarot or queer folks, have a space to gather that is safe for women. So I think hearing about, you know, how sexuality and gender and gender presentation has informed these two women's lives was really interesting from both an oral history perspective and looking at entrepreneurship more broadly because I think, you know, it's easy to to take a group like a lesbian women experience entrepreneurship this way. But really, if you look at that group, there's a whole range of, of experiences and pathways to small business ownership. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which entrepreneurship intersected with community and activism for the interviewees? For Erin, when I asked her about this question, she was talking about, you know, how creating a bar that is specifically designed with, you know, the interest of creating a safe space for women around drinking is really radical. And that even though Arcana isn't a queer bar per se, she was saying that she really wanted to have this place where people could have voice and specifically where they could feature artists, you know, some of whom are queer, to show their work, to bring in artists from the community who might just be starting off. How do you see these interviews contributing to a broader historical narrative of sexuality and gender, perhaps in terms of community and business ownership or in a more general context? 
just oral histories are so important, particularly in this moment when, especially in North Carolina, in the aftermath of HB2, questions about religious freedom bills and and can businesses reserve the right to refuse service to queer identified or LGBT folks. I think it's really important to understand how people are, are navigating this reality as business owners. You know, I talk to lesbian business owners, but, you know, if you talk to business owners in the LGBTQ community, you're going to get a whole different perspective on the moment that we're in. I think activism can take so many different forms. It can be doing the small things that maybe don't go noticed, like doing the hardwood flooring for a community center or showing art and things that small business owners are uniquely positioned to provide for a community. They occupy a really important place in Durham's history. So I think what Carol says about the range of experiences, even amongst a distinct group like lesbian entrepreneurs, is incredibly important. And this ties back into Evan and Aaron's point that there was no single way to be gay or to be out during the early days of the Carolina Gay Association. Yeah, and it also, I mean, it reminds me in a way, there's a there's a echo of Randall Keenan's point about having to choose between being black and being gay, because the way that the business community is portrayed in the in the media these days, it's almost like you're supposed to either be a business owner or be LGBTQ. And these women's experiences show that that obviously is, is not true and that business owners are not a monolithic group. So these oral histories help provide a much more complex understanding of business ownership and entrepreneurship and community involvement. These oral histories are contributing to a recognition of broadly different ways in which people are impacted by the legislation targeting LGBTQ community. From the archive, where we share short clips from the interviews in our collection at the Southern Oral History Program. This segment includes a compilation of clips we brought together to think about activism and coalition building in the South. The Southern Oral History Program's archive is rich with many different collections that catalog LGBTQ oral histories, with interviewees that represent experiences across race, class, gender, and generation. We wanted to bring the following segments out of the seclusion of the archive to offer some historical context for the current moment we are in as a state and as a nation. The following segment features three folks who have been active here in the Triangle. The first voice you'll hear is Mandy Carter, a longtime activist who helped establish Southerners on New Ground, an organization specifically founded for and made up of people of color, immigrants, undocumented people, people with disabilities, working class, and rural and small town LGBTQ people in the South. Next, you'll hear from Terry Phoenix, the current director of the LGBTQ Center here at UNC Chapel Hill, who discusses the struggle for gender-neutral bathrooms on campus. Finally, you'll hear Ping Wen, who at the time of the interview was a student here at UNC Chapel Hill. 
Ping grew up in Rock Hill, South Carolina, after emigrating with his family from Vietnam. And in the clip, he discusses the differences between New York, where he began his undergraduate work, and the South, where he eventually moved back. Together, these interviews represent a range of responses to marginalization in the South. The Employment Non-Discrimination Act has been out there for years. It's been something that the human rights campaign has been trying to pass forever. Basically, it's a, it's a federal non-discrimination ordinance. The human rights campaign intentionally left out transgender because they said, if you include transgender, we'll never get it. But that was the same rationale when white women got up there in Seneca Falls and said, we're not going to include black women because it's going to be hard for us. Well, they made that decision, but there was such an outcry of people thinking, how can the human rights campaign who believes in this not include transgender, and ultimately they changed it, not because they, they wanted to, because it was such an outrage, there was such a backlash, that they said, okay, 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 we'll include transgender. So now they have it, right? And I think every time people would kind of further explore their own identity, then you began with words like transgender, then pansexual, then intersex, because it was just getting more and more clearer. And why not use those letters? Someone said there's too many letters. Not, not, not in my opinion. If you need to add letters onto it, add them on. What's the difference? You need to really try to understand people's lives, who they are, what they believe in. And that has been so rich. And for those who have a real issue with it, people, you know what? People self-select out. They're not interested. Don't do it. But don't stop those who feel like they really need. And, I, and I've just been so excited about that. Right now, in terms of the lesbian, gay, trans community, Transgender activism is at its, it's just happening in a major, major way. I'm just wondering, when I think of, of being a North Carolina activist, I love this state. This is what I look at. Folk of color, are there any? What kind of, what's the class of the folk that I might be working with? Are they going to be inclusive of issues of gender? And, and which is one reason why we started Southerners on New Ground. What could we do? So we said, well, we're just like one group, but what would happen if we were, as a small organization, to talk about transformative models of organizing that connect race, class, culture, gender, identity against the larger backdrop of justice. And boy, it makes a big difference in terms of how, what kind of work you get done. And I think that's a great model. And I started working here in 2005. And, and by that point, really solidly identified as, as a genderqueer trans person. And so started trying to raise the conversation in this area about trans identities and, and trans visibility and trying to find groups and trying to support groups and, and just get involved. On campus, the first one of the first things I did was the trying to find a gender non-specific bathroom because bathrooms are a challenge for trans people and gender non-conforming people in general. Because you go into a bathroom and people are trying to figure out, are you in the right one or the wrong one? You know, so you get stared at. Sometimes I had actually had security called on me a couple of places. And, you know, once, once here at Chapel Hill, once at University of Georgia, you know, often had people ask me if I'm in the wrong place or, I mean, it's just, it's a common occurrence. So, so when I got here, I started that conversation. We were in the basement of steel building and there was a single stall locking bathroom it was labeled by gender and it's like well, why are we why are we labeling a single stall locking bathroom by gender like that doesn't make sense you go in you lock the door you go to the bathroom and so starting that conversation was was a big part of what I did that first year that I was here 
in the design regulations for UNC Chapel Hill, the design guide, which is the guide you have to abide by when you're doing any major build or any major renovation. They have in there that you have to have at least one gender nonspecific bathroom. I'm happy with at least one. We we continue to try to lobby to have single stall bathrooms labeled just as bathrooms. And so we're going to continue to try to try to get that done. You know, people like to think that the South is this conservative region, you know, religious, conservative. And New York is this great liberal place. People can be whatever you want to be. But, you know, the social narrative for what to be a gay man is still the same and similar in both sense, which is, you know, it's still catered towards cisgender, hetero-acting gay men. So as a queer Asian who is radical, I don't think the experience has really changed much between both places. So the North is not as great as people claim it to be, and the South is not as bad as we claim it to be. Um, I think both places has things that they need to work on, and I'm not going to shame the South because I think the North is still problematic. I think that maybe the North has more tolerance than the South, but tolerance is not good enough for me. The issues of the tolerance is this, is saying that, you know what, I can deal with you, that you're here. But you're still, something about you is not the same for the rest of the member of society. And I guess that's the point I'm trying to make, is that the North and the South still practice this tolerant ideology. Um, and maybe the North is a little bit more ahead of in terms of tolerant issues, because there's more of us being more visible there. But it's still the same to me, because... I mean, I've been to New York, and it's definitely not a post-gay society there. (laughs) I'll tell you that. And it's definitely not the post-gay society here. So I think this selection of oral history clips really works to highlight perspectives from the South, and from North Carolina in particular, that counter mainstream stories of the region, which is crucial if we want a more honest and complete picture of history and of the present moment. Yeah, I was talking recently with Barbara Lau, who runs the Polly Murray Project in Durham, North Carolina, and she said that she had seen a report that while something like 30% of LGBTQ people live in the South, only 10% of money was going to Southern organizations. And she was really galvanized by this and really thought that it was partly because LGBTQ history and people in the South is more invisible. Those voices have not been heard in the South as much. So she has really undertaken to launch a new project called Queer History South, where she is talking with archivists and oral historians and others across the South to find out what information they have, and then is going to work to make those more visible, more accessible so that researchers can start making these experiences known more. And we started to, as a result, really go through our collection and kind of start identifying what's in there. And like you said, they illuminate a very 
diverse group of people, a diverse group of experiences across a wide span of time. I agree. A lot of the mainstream news outlets have a way of completely erasing the reality that there is an LGBTQ community in North Carolina that is actively resisting this legislation. And the oral histories that we've heard on the show, I think, show that there's a rich history here of activism and community. Both Evan and Randall Keenan pointed out that it's not a history that moves in one direction necessarily, and it's not uh, just a purely happy story of progress either, which HB2 has, I think, really made come home for a lot of people. And I think what Randall Keenan was pointing to was you can have these moments of legal change, but when hearts and minds aren't changed, then backlash is sure to ensue. And, and I feel like that's what we're seeing here and, and that history is not a simple story of progress, but there are these back and forth moments and we're living through one that is very intense and being played out not just in our community, but on this national stage. So I think capturing people's stories now and their perspective now is really important. And also looking back to see how this fits into a longer history is is important as well. So it seems like transgender issues are coming to the forefront right now. But yeah, we heard Mandy Carter talk about the importance of including trans individuals in legislation and that was in 2007. And we know that it, of course, goes back much, much further than that. Right. Mandy's interviews from 2007 and Ping and Terry's interviews happened in 2014, both of which were before HB2. And Terry was talking about bathrooms being actually an important locus of activism, you know, several years ago. So these oral histories help help us understand the long history of these issues that in the newspapers look like they suddenly flare up in almost unpredictable ways. But actually, through these oral histories, we see that these reflect much longer standing conversations and and fights that have been going on for, for decades in many cases. Before we end this episode of Press Record, I'd like to share more of my conversation with Carol Prince. We discuss the tensions and connections that exist between interviewer and interviewee as that relates to gender identity and sexuality and acknowledge the limitations we encountered within the oral history archive as pathways to growth and expansion. So I came in a class brand new to oral history, to the field, and we read a lot about how oral history is co-created, how it's relational, how it's never the same twice, and... A lot of that has to do with the experiences that the interviewee and the interviewer are coming into when they're walking into that interview. And I think that is a particularly important aspect to consider when conducting oral histories with LGBTQ folks, especially if the interviewer does not identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, trans. There's going to be an inherent power dynamic. I mean, with a history of shame and silence and being incarcerated by the state for how, you know, someone expresses their gender or sexuality, 
personality, narrating oneself can be especially complicated and hard. Your sexuality isn't always obvious, and so it is something that sometimes you have to name. And navigating that, I think, in the position of the interviewer is difficult because you also don't want to make it about yourself when you're interviewing someone and or collecting their oral history especially you want to give them as much space as you possibly can and so it's confusing for me to know how to navigate that and how much information I should be sharing about myself in that sort of a situation. Definitely. When I interviewed Jeannie and Aaron, I never came out officially <laughs> to them. I, you know, I think there's going to be common language or common set of experiences, which isn't always, you know, it's not a matter of like, this is better or worse, because we talked in class about how sometimes someone who isn't walking into the room with the same experiences might ask clarifying questions that someone who shares a set of experiences might take for granted. And so for the record and the oral history record, it might be beneficial to have those clarifications for people who are like Evan and Aaron who are saying, you know, we're new to gay history. And, you know, I was interviewing them as a queer woman about their experience writing about LGBTQ histories at Carolina as to cis het white men. And I think that speaks to how the discipline of history is opening up in a way where doing LGBTQ history is seen as this new, exciting field, but also being really careful and thinking about, you know, the way the academy thinks about the these histories versus the act of doing oral history, which has been done by queer folks for generations in, quote, unofficial, end quote, ways. And in terms of how do you tell your story when you can't see yourself represented? There are still, like, tendencies to collect officially oral histories from individuals who occupy spaces of privilege. And I think a lot of the, like, research we did for this podcast illuminated that need to push past those spaces and collect histories from more marginalized groups and to really feature them more prominently. I mean, I think especially... In the South, the South is like a big, I mean, North Carolina, the coalition leading a lot of the, at least protests on the streets in the Capitol building have been led by queer and trans people of color specifically. And the record officially might not reflect that. And that's an area of of growth, you know, looking forward. So I want to say thank you to Charlotte and welcome to the podcast. This is Charlotte's first time as our co-host and we're so glad to have you. Thank you. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for listening. If this podcast has piqued your curiosity about oral history and LGBTQ activism, be sure to check out the latest special issue of the Oral History Review listening to and learning from LGBTQ Lives, which explores these themes in greater depth and also includes the paper by Evan and Aaron we discussed in our first segment. You can subscribe to Press Record on iTunes and listen to the podcast on SoundCloud. All of the interviews mentioned in this podcast will be linked on the homepage of Press Record at SOHP.org. In the spirit of featuring queer artists from the South, all the music included in this episode of Press Record is by Julian Baker, 
a self-identified lesbian artist from Memphis, Tennessee, whose latest album, titled Sprained Ankle, was released earlier this year. We want to extend our gratitude to Julian Baker and her management team and record label for granting us permission to share her music with you for this episode. information, please visit our website at SOHP.org. And if you have any ideas, questions, or concerns, feel free to email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. As we always say at the end of an interview, is there anything else we should have talked about?